Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Tiyu Dehan here with me. Uh, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. And we are on board of this beautiful, lovely boathouse where you live in the Limehouse That's uh, right. area in London. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing spot. I, I understand that you find lots of both peace and inspiration here. That's right. It's like being on retreat, but it's in the heart of the city. So even though it's like six minutes from a super central lo- yeah. location, there's swans, there's birds. It's beautiful, mm. calm. Lovely. And your name is, is very unusual. Tell me. It is. So my first name, Tiu, is Estonian. My mother's parents were Estonian mm-hmm. and they fled the Russians invading Estonia. So she never went back and I've never been. But I was given an Estonian name as a nod to the ancestors. And then my father's family were Dutch German and he fled the Nazis. So Dehan is a Dutch name. Tiu is an Estonian name. They met here. I'm a Londoner, but I clearly don't have any English blood, <laughs> but I was born and raised here. Wonderful. And uh, by way of intro, she is a ritual designer, creative facilitator and creative coach. And she's been teaching people how to connect with their innate imagination for many years now and increasingly work in the area of creating bespoke rituals that assist change, designing moments of meaning for all kinds of transitions, big and small. She's worked with the UN, the BBC, L'Oreal, and many other organizations and companies, as well as world-leading neuroscientists, quantum physicists, and artists exploring the shifts of perception and meaning-making. And uh, she's also given keynote talks at Google, UN, and many more places. Mm-hmm. So that's an impressive uh, <laughs> story and background you, you, you have. I bet you, you, you're having fun given what you also work with. I do with. have fun. Yeah, I think that's part of what I'm here to do is treat it all like an exploration. Mm. And I watched the other night a video clip on, on something that you call pranoia. Mm-hmm. What is that exactly and how does it serve us? Okay, so pronoia is a made up word, not by me. It's the opposite of paranoia. So paranoia is the belief that everything in the universe is out to get you. Everything is against you, everything goes wrong. Pronoia is the exact opposite belief mm. where everything in the universe is secretly conspiring on your behalf for your best interests. And neither one of those things is the truth. But pronoia is a playful lens through which you can choose to see the world if you want to. So it's a way of shifting your perception so that you interpret challenges, for example, as blessings in disguise. It gives you the question, what if this were for me? And even just asking that question can often give you a fresh perspective on something that's going on. So on one hand, it's about shifting your perception around the way in which we interpret our reality. But on the other hand, the other part, which I love, is one of the best ways to activate a sense of paranoia is to sneak around doing random acts of kindness and beauty, ideally covert, so that you give other people the experience for the universe conspiring on their behalf. And very quickly, it makes you feel very gleeful and joyous and 
it gives you a completely new perspective on on even a kind of depressing city street. Suddenly you go, maybe I can leave a love letter or light a candle or tie a balloon to somebody's bicycle. And it kind of transforms your experience. So the Pronoia Project is a series of workshops that I've done over the years and a, a toolkit that I give out freely for other people to do the same thing. <laughs> but essentially it's a philosophy. It doesn't pretend to be the truth. That's important. I'm not Pollyanna-ish going, la la la, everything's perfect. I'm not, that's mm. not my reality. But it's interesting to choose a lens that can feel empowering. When you're stuck in a situation that feels like it's not working, asking the question, what if this were for me, is a really brilliant way to open up a new way of seeing the situation. Mm. Beautiful. At the beginning, for example, I mean, this is just one of the things that you do, but, yeah. but how did you come up with that uh, idea and... and uh... With the pronoia specifically? Mm. Mm. I think I've always been that way inclined. I think it's partly like I had a mother who would take great delight in hiding sweets in my socks or like leaving kind of like mystery notes in my lunch or like, you know, she would always kind of, she took great delight all my life in kind of making everything feel like a treasure hunt. So I sort of had this natural way of mm. wanting to create little magical surprises for other people anyway, always have felt that and for myself <laughs> and then I set up a business years ago a not-for-profit that became around teaching parents how to reconnect with their playfulness mm -hmm. through their children teaching the masterclass mm -hmm. so it was a huge learning for me and it was a wonderful company and in exploring that again like the children taught us, me, my team, how to do it properly, because they're really good at it. They're not stressed about spreadsheets and, you know, deadlines. They're just, they're very good at playing. So that whole way of being informed the design of, of the company and everything that we did and how I worked with my staff and how I played with my staff also. And the kind of natural follow on is that everything that I do relates this kind of concept of playfulness being related to creativity. The two things are interwoven. They're not the only combination. There are other aspects of creativity that are to do with much darker emotions and much more kind of uh, visceral transformations and grief and beauty and darkness and pain being transmuted through creativity. But the mechanism of being playful is universal because we've all been seven. So everyone has somewhere in them the capacity to see the world as a playground and you walk down the street with a seven-year-old and they climb on walls and they jump off things and their experience of our reality is very different and even if that can be stressful or annoying or feel a million miles away from our reality the fact is we have all been there and we spent many years in that space so seven-year-olds I mean, I'm picking that age just because I happen to like seven-year-olds particularly <laughs> because they're really good at making up stories and their creative imagination is at its um, zenith. They have more synaptic pathways firing than we do by a very long way. They have more agility, more color. You give them a tiny prompt and they will immediately turn your prompt into an imaginative landscape. And as we age, and as we go into increasingly linear educational systems, we lose that capacity, or at least it can become stultified. It can become encrusted with 
linear thinking and actually the idea of bringing play back into it to me is this sort of universal way in to breaking open some of the ways in which we think and see in order to use our imagination to explore the world differently. But how do you transfer this um, talent of yours and, and your insights into the business world? So the way that I translate my unusual <laughs> approach is under the premise that if we're all creatively alive, if we're all engaged in our work and in our connections with the people that we're working with and in the bigger meaning behind what we do, it brings together all the best that we have to offer in a way that can become enlivening and useful and playful and creatively imaginative. So I teach creative thinking mm -hmm. in order to let people take the tools that I offer, which aren't necessarily, I don't necessarily tell them where they need to apply them. I give them the tools and then they run with them in order to open up their creative thinking so that they can come up with the solutions that they need to come up with given their particular mm -hmm. context. For example, I worked for a year with a group of quantum physicists in the Center for Quantum Photonics, which is this world-leading research facility exploring the creation of photons, meaning the tiniest particles of light, how to encode them with data and how to create the component parts that are going towards making the world's first readily available quantum computer. Now, I have no idea how these brains work. <laughs> like, I am not a physicist. I'm not a scientist. Um, I've never set foot in a lab other than to work with these guys and look mystified at the tools. But what I can do is get them to think differently. So their head came to me and said, can you make them think the unthinkable? <laughs> and I said, well, I like that as a challenge. So I then created a year's worth of programs for them to take them out of the lab. They're all super brains, you know, incredibly smart scientific thinkers, but their imagination perhaps wasn't as agile as it could be. And their interpersonal skills weren't necessarily where they were tested because a lot of their work was individual and lab-based and they didn't necessarily marry the creative with the scientific. So the boss brought me in to help them to connect to what it is to be human, to come up with bigger solutions, to think outside the box and to go on adventures that opened up their creativity. And of course, they weren't the easiest crowd always because there was a lot of kind of wait why is she taking us to a forest why are we being told to play hide and seek you know like, mm -hmm. but the end result was mm -hmm. they had this different culture it cracked open some relationships and it cracked open some ways of thinking that allowed them to then take these tools and apply them to these concepts which were far beyond my understanding i can't i can't make I can't join the dots for them because I'm not a physicist, but I can say, if you try this, I promise you, you will be able to think differently. And then they can take that and apply it to their work. Mm. So I apply what I do with the premise that any problem is usually solved by the imagination. Whether you're dealing with an environmental disaster or 
an organizational situation or something to do with any number of different issues from the micro to the macro, it's our lack of imagination that causes the block. Mm. I can help people free up their imagination and then they can apply it to whatever it is that's relevant for them. Mm -hmm. So I teach people how to reconnect with their ability to play, to imagine, to create and to connect. And that then becomes up to them how they then carry that forward in their organization. Mm -hmm. But if I would, for example, ask you for me or for behalf of a client company, for example, mm -hmm. to do this work for us, and it's a company, you mm -hmm. know, regular whatever kind mm -hmm. of company, how do you go about it? What, what, what's then happening? I ask them a lot of questions about what they need and where they're at. And I might create something bespoke for their situation or it might be to do with a particular point of transition. So mm -hmm. one example is there's a big corporate PR firm that I work with and they wanted to provide creative thinking training for the people who do the writing. So I created a writing course for them, which was about getting them to inhabit different points of view. Mm -hmm. And essentially, <laughs> I gave them this technique, which is how David Bowie used to write songs, but they're applying it to how they unpack their clients' stories. You know, so they're bringing in this kind of completely abstract, creative, heart-centered mm -hmm. way of jumping into the material, but the end result is a story about a client or anthropomorphizing the client, you know, creating a being oh. with whom they are collaborating. That's one example. I'm um, just curious about the David Bowie yeah. writing songs. How, how was it? <laughs> okay, I can tell you. Yeah. It's called The Cut Up. It's basically, it works brilliantly in any situation where you have to do any kind of writing and you're stuck. I used to be a songwriter and I used to use this for my songs. Oh. So what happens is you have to write by hand, stream of consciousness on A4 paper on one side only, and you write for usually 15 minutes without stopping and don't limit yourself in terms of what you're writing. You don't need, you just need to write continuously. Don't take your hand off the page. Don't worry about the quality of the writing. And then when you stop, go back over the piece of writing and underline words or phrases that jump out at you. They don't need to make any sense, but they could be a single word or a pair of words, probably a maximum of half a sentence. And you underline maybe 10 or 20 clusters, and then you cut them out. You literally physically get a scalpel and you, or a craft knife and you cut out the paper. And then you end up with a bit like fridge magnet poetry. You know, you end up with all of these words and you play with them, you move them around and you see what the combinations of the words are. And depending on the kind of instructions that you've had doing the creative, the free writing in the first place, which you can add more detail to, it doesn't just have to be free, mm -hmm. you end up with a cluster of words that will be quite charged and quite unexpected in certain combinations. So then you basically spend 10 minutes gluing them onto the page going, I didn't realize I could write poetry. I did this with senior lawyers mm -hmm. <laughs> at the Law Society. And they came out going, I've never written a poem before. You know, like these sort of really sort of straight linear thinkers came out having written a poem in 20 minutes. So that's a technique. But you can apply that to having a shift of thinking around anything. You can utilize that same idea of freely allowing things to go onto the page and then cutting them up and moving them around to give you a different experience. Mm -hmm. So that's one example. That's what, so their need was how can we energize the creative writing of the people who are in charge of doing press releases? 
that was my brief. On the other end of the spectrum, I was brought in to work with L'Oreal, who wanted to create an experiment around the idea of empowerment and hair. So I collaborated with, there's a famous neuroscientist who I saw yesterday, in fact, whose name is Bo Lotto, who is a best-selling author of a book called Deviate, which is all about the science of perception. He has a thing called the Lab of Misfits. I'm a misfit. And he creates experiments to explore things like empowerment, wonder, tolerance, creativity. And he and L'Oreal were collaborating, brought me in to create a ritual to explore whether we could produce an experience for people using their products that took them from feeling disempowered to being empowered. So that was a very specific, uh, measurable result where they wanted a data point to say, is it possible to change how you actually feel by using these products? Can we prove this? Mm-hmm. And the answer was yes. But in that case, it was a very specific experiential shift. And in the writing case, it was like, how can we have tools to free up our thinking? So I find out what's needed and I create according to what is needed. And and the rituals is one part of this then. I mean, it's important as water and food for our bodies, you said somewhere. I quoted somebody else who said that. There's okay. a, yeah, yeah. She, there's, there's a, a woman called Sabonfu Somme who says, mm. ritual is to our souls as food and water are to our bodies. It's that mm. important. Mm. And what would you say is, is um, you know, your, your passion? I mean, that, that word is used too much I think, today. But what I'm actually aiming at is, you know, it comes from this Latin kind of patire, which means really ready to suffer for something. It's so important to you that you are ready to suffer for it. That's a great question. What would I be willing to suffer for? I think living authentically, sharing something that is from my heart without compromise, which is in my case, joy, playfulness, creativity, how to evoke wonder, how to live a life that's brightly colored. I'm very aware that as I'm sitting here, I'm dressed in very bright colors, which I wasn't all day. Like, <laughs> which is beautiful. Thank you. I feel acutely aware of the brevity of life, how we mostly live without an awareness of our death. And I have always been aware of death because I lost my mother very young and various other things have happened that I'm healthy, but I'm aware of the fact that this is a story that will have its end. And for me, that isn't a depressing thing. That is a vivifier. So for me, the thing that I find that I'm probably most committed to is living a life where I'm sharing my gift in a way that is received by others. And as it happens, my gift is around connecting with play and wonder and creativity and the imagination. And I genuinely think that in that capacity lies the possibility of sorting out big problems in the world. I can't say that I would sacrifice myself for the solution to climate change because I don't know enough about how to get there to be able to say that if I could, maybe I would, but I don't, that's not my gift. But my gift might be giving the tools to the people who have the intellect to be able to imagine the solutions to climate change. That feels like my piece. Mm. And for me, suffering actually 
happens when I go against my truth or when I try to fit myself into a box that is too small. Or if I try to over-commercialize my offering and I make it too much about other people's language, I feel like there's something around being authentic and being willing to be a weirdo, being weird, willing to be a misfit, an outlier and saying this is, it may mean that people don't understand, <laughs> like I don't do Excel spreadsheets, do you know what I mean? Like if I did, I'm sure life would be a lot easier. I'd be a lot more hireable. I'm a weirdo, I'm a maverick, I know that. But I also feel like part of my gift is to honor that and to be a different We offering. We have so much of the, the streamlined things anyways. Yes. Uh, you know, so much is, is mainstream. So, but it's always this, you know, being true to yourself, authentic for that sake and not because somebody is positioning themselves as it, right? And it's the same thing with companies. That's why I, I call this unplugged, the corporate mm. unplugged, because I want to catch that dimension that is authentic and genuine and true. Uh, that kind of authenticity should always be present. And I think that's one of the keys to also prosper as a company or as an organization. You stand for something and you're using yourself as an instrument for something mm. that is a good change or some contribution. So what do you think is the key for companies to find that kind of authenticity? What are they there for? Well, I have a theory. <laughs> I have a theory that ideas have their own lifespan and their own intelligence. And that an idea is sometimes visited upon somebody who has the capacity to take that idea and bring it into the world. And that's an idea that is, that's a concept rather, that is common to a lot of artists where they feel inspiration comes through them rather than from them. Mm. But I would say it actually exists in the world of work in exactly the same way. It's like the concept for a creation, an invention, a movement, an industry, in essence starts as a thought form somewhere along the way and it collaborates with people who feel drawn towards it and somehow the whole thing becomes a kind of a dance between the idea that wants to be birthed into the world and the people who are then charged with birthing it. And for me, a corporation is called a corporation because it's a corpus, it's a body, it's a being, it's got its own kind of consciousness. And I feel like the further we go into artificial intelligence and into big data, the more that those abstractions are going to become intelligent beings with whom we have to interact. Like where we're going with this is less and less about individual creative contributions, but companies become beings who interact with each other and in the world and have greater or lesser impacts. And there will come landscapes where their relevance ceases to be as important as it is just now, there will be, we're right on the precipice of all these extraordinary shifts, um, some of which are kind of disconcerting because they're potentially creating such new landscapes we won't know how to navigate through them. But at the same time, the relationship between the creative idea and the human being, mm. I think that's where the authenticity comes. If you come back to some sort of sense of being in collaboration or even in service to an idea that has its time and you navigate as if it has its own will <laughs> and you want to work with it for the best outcome of all, that's a way of taking the stress away from the individual shoulders going, it's upon me to deliver this stuff. It's a way of kind of 
shifting into a partnership with something that is in flow. It's another version of the pronoia thing, actually. It's like if you take pronoia into a philosophy and saying it's like a murmuration. You know when all birds change direction at the same time or when shoals of fish move in one direction suddenly? When you're in flow, individually, you can be in flow collectively. And when an organization hits that sweet spot, people within it and other organizations in the world at large all kind of sync up in this way that I think can be powerful. That is undermined by individuals pulling willfully in different directions rather than being in service to the bigger purpose or being in service to how can they bring their intelligence, their compassion, their empathy, their intuition, their creativity and their listening to what it is that wants to be brought forth. And those are skills that haven't traditionally been prized or rewarded financially. And I feel like as we move forward into a time of increasing uncertainty <laughs> and problems of a scale that we haven't necessarily ever had to face before, those are the qualities that will be most needed those which I suppose would be seen as traditionally feminine, not female, but, you know, the opposite of the strident ambition, growth-focused kind of structure and more about something more intuitive, more unplugged, perhaps. Mm. And when ambition takes second place to collective organisation and the best outcome for all, that's, I think, where an organization's integrity and identity and authority and authenticity can become a kind of guiding light for those people who work with it and with each other. Wonderful. I'm quiet because I just uh, enjoy the moment of hearing you say all these things because I so much believe in this yeah. and I have seen in reality what difference it makes when there is this flow or not. Yeah. But the magic is also in how to, how do you create that awareness inside a, you know a company or a corpus so to say an organization and um, what do you think what does it take because as it is difficult uh, there is also an excuse of not you know going there sure. or, or, or at least uh, making an effort I think it takes different things sometimes it's a visionary leader sometimes mm. it's somebody who has the courage to break open the culture and say this isn't working. Sometimes it's in response to the system no longer functioning and therefore having to innovate in response to a climate that no longer sustains the previous way of doing things. Sometimes it's a different generation rising into the workforce and they just have different expectations and values and priorities. And sometimes I don't have any idea how it happens or why it happens. It just happens. <laughs> so, and there's probably various other configurations. The tricky thing is, as you say, if it doesn't feel like it's crucial and it doesn't feel like it's going to monetize itself instantly, then you're really relying upon a visionary leader or set of leaders or organization to welcome in something that isn't just about the bottom line. Mm. I went to a talk a few years ago by the CEO of McKinsey and I was really surprised by what he had to say. It was in it was a talk in one of those it was in one of the halls in the city where it was covered in wood and on the walls there were these portraits of white men with wigs and medals you know that kind of the classic the absolute the patriarchy you know and everybody in there 
was white and male mostly and they were, they were all wearing navy or black suits and there were a few women but very few and the ones that were there had you know helmet hair and in that space I was amazed he said things that to my mind sounded incredibly radical including things like there is no point having quarterly reporting anymore the short-termism of that is how we're getting ourselves into such a crisis he said um, there's no point valuing the shareholder over the stakeholder because that leads to decision making that destroys the planet he said if you're going to want to sustain the business that you're all in charge of you have to radically change what you're doing right now and he sounded like a kind of radical activist but this was not a radical activist he was saying business practices had to change direction quickly in order to have a planet where there were people who even were able to sustain the idea of capitalism which was in itself questioned within the talk and to my astonishment i remember looking around all these all these heads of all these men they were all nodding they were all agreeing and even at that level at the kind of the bastion of the old school even they were realizing that if they continued to sell in the way that they had been selling they will be selling to a population that won't have gainful employment who won't be able to buy the things that they're trying to sell and there won't be a planet to cope with the detritus as a result like the smart thinking has a different perspective so and that requires an imaginative leap and that requires investment in imagination and therefore a willingness to let go of the old ways of doing things which takes courage and risk and also i think crucially a recalibration of how we measure value so if we have always traditionally measured value only in financial terms and specifically how many profits go to the ceo or found whatever that is fast becoming irrelevant i think we, we've been using or it has been used shareholder values and you know outdated kind of almost term of course there are shareholders and we need to you know provide value but with that as an excuse things have been you know um, made for for the wrong reasons right so yeah it's all in in, in a way in the purpose of, of the company yeah and in the openness to new ways of seeing and, and I think being curious and being inquisitive and creative in the way in which you deal with these vast problems rather than going backwards to cling to some kind of old system which once upon a time worked but essentially was born out of a different time anyway mm. so have you read um, Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari yeah know? not the whole of yeah okay I so I think he's fascinating and I've just started his new book which is 21 lessons for the 21st century. He essentially says all of the concepts that we have inherited without really questioning them such as, you know, money, <laughs> nation states, um free will, liberalism, democracy, all of those things are brought into question by virtue of the shifts that we're about to experience. None of those things may apply anymore. And so if you have a bunch of people going no but Brexit's important or investing in I don't know fossil fuels all of the things that are backward looking that's a kind of crazy recalcitrant move when faced with the unknown as opposed to inquiring into big thinking and imaginative openness 
And it's understandable when we're faced with impossibly huge and complex new ideas without any map to navigate them with, the first impulse is fearful and is to go back to something old school. Mm. And it's understandable, but it's not forgivable. <laughs> it's like you can kind of go, okay, yeah, fine. Okay, fine. Yeah, do a little bit of investing in the tin mines. Let's talk about mm. the environmental impact. And I think the rate of change and the world in which we live is requiring imaginative leaps, which we haven't yet had to make. But the more that they become pressing, there will be solutions. There will be new ways of seeing. There will be, I mean, I'm deeply heartened by the millennials in my world, I have to say. I find their lack of binary thinking incredibly refreshing. With gender is one example, but just in, in terms of binary politics, it's so 19th century, <laughs> you know? Nation states, they're kind of ridiculous in a way, you know? I mean, they are, they're also beautiful and the nuances and the individuality is extraordinary. But in terms of, if you're living in a digital world, physical borders become irrelevant. So, you know, BitNation is a really interesting creation of an online world where you can register as a citizen of, an, of a borderless state. It's just, it's a digital one. So you can have your rights as a citizen, you can get married, you can have bank accounts, but you're a resident of the digital nation, which is global. That's where we're going. It's not, you know, those ideas are gonna be more relevant the more that refugees are moving in huge numbers across the planet, the more that the climate change affects our border, everything, you know, the breakdown of 19th century political systems, it's all changing. So imaginative leaps are required. And at the same time, it's also scary because um, we more and more, I think, appreciate physical encounters, yes. meetings, in order to understand each other better and Absolutely. ourselves because all all that is somehow digital is out there and it exists and we all participate in it and even if it's as you say on a future global level it also requires so much more of us on a global level because what is the universal code where we are going to meet and respect each other in a good way you know how we we can't ensure that all of us will be you know values driven and coming from the heart so to say and yeah. have good intentions there's all kinds of things out there so even if it's all sounds kind of fascinating and positive and inviting it's also easy to be a bit skeptical and turn to maybe not just nation states, but become more local in the midst of it. Absolutely. And need to do that. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think that becoming more human is what we need to do. And actually, the more that automation replaces human endeavor in terms of, you know, the way in which people will make money and so on, my hope is, see, I'm more hopeful than, he, than Yuval Noah Harari. I feel and it may be a while till we get to this point, but my sense is the more that there is a distinction between intelligence and consciousness, the more that these two things are separated as opposed to conflated, which has never happened before, we will start to become more concerned with, we will cherish more dearly the things that make us human. And that means the universal. So the work of ritual is always that which is universal. The things that are, are ritualized are things like 
birth and death and love and home and food and seasons and meal times and shelter and sex and all the things that regardless of where you live or what age you are or what your skin color is or what your politics we all share these things and for me they are an ancient human uh, response to this sense of overwhelm or to this sense of meaning making and they give us the means the tools to punctuate the vastness <laughs> with these uniquely human connections to the heart and because we've been in this funny kind of the 20th century thing of I mean, I'm going to say such a ridiculous sweeping state but it's sort of almost not worth saying but because the growth to this point has been blurring this idea of progress and growth with our humanity the more that the progress and the growth outstrips our humanity and say automation and AI start to replace traditional human endeavor the more that the kind of stuff I do I hope <laughs> will be seen as increasingly valuable because no matter how brilliant your AI it can't fall in love it can't play it can't grieve it can't go into the forest and build a den it can't have a pillow fight with its little brother you know it can't connect to that sense of magic I mean I know that there are many forms of AI that are beginning to become very creative and that's interesting but I still feel like in that separation between the intelligence outstripping the human intelligence, what we're gonna become more interested in is consciousness and that which makes us human. So the quantum physicist, who was the head honcho of that department, he's now in Silicon Valley. He's founded a startup, which is basically ahead of the curve in the entire world in terms of being on track to create the world's first readily available quantum computer. If that works, mm -hmm. everything that follows the dataism that we are moving into will become enabled by the creation of the quantum computer. At the moment, it hasn't yet quite got to the point where the data can be collated in such a way as to allow for the speed of growth. But this is, that's the key, was one of the keys. So he came here to the boat, we hung out, we had dinner, and I said, what are you doing? Like, are you gonna save the world? Are you gonna destroy it? <laughs> you know, are you building the atom bomb or are you, enabling us to be deities. I wish I'd captured the conversation because it was very good. But he essentially said that the more that he gets involved in this concept of creating these tools, he becomes increasingly passionate about what it is to be human. And actually, the further he gets down the path of realizing where this is leading, where the quantum computing world will go, the more that he wants to connect with his children, he wants to go for walks in the forest, he wants to sit in my boat and have dinner with me and have epic philosophical chats, and he wants to connect with the hearts of the people with whom he works, and he wants to remember why it's all happening, and he wants to basically give humanity the tools so that it can solve currently unsolvable problems because the scope of them is so vast that the tools need to be big enough to cope. And that's his motivation. I find that quite inspiring. It's obviously, it could go either way. It could go dark, but we have never before been at this pivot point. I for one feel like there's something, I'm sort of weirdly hopeful. I feel like we're on the cusp of something really interesting.
I also feel like it might be a really painful transition. Going back to you, what transformational point in your life have influenced you the most? The big pivot points for me were two spring to mind. One, my mother died just before I went to Oxford and her death, she was a very inspiring, wonderful being and we were super close and I had just turned 18 and her death was the single most difficult thing I had ever experienced, probably still is to this day, honestly, because I was alone with her and it was very traumatic. And just after that, I went to Oxford, which is the least emotionally intelligent place on the planet, potentially. You know, it's like, it's all abstract thought. There's no hugging and crying, <laughs> you know, none at all. There's no therapy. There's, well, maybe there wasn't then anyway. There was just conceptual <laughs> thinking. So because I went from my heart being broken to this totally cerebral world, it was a while before I realized I needed to learn a different kind of intelligence. I needed to learn how to feel, how to grieve, how to connect with things that were nothing to do with an Oxford Don's intelligence or things that couldn't necessarily even be captured in an essay. And that set me on the path to acquire the skills that ultimately feed into the work that I do now. So my mother's death and then my subsequent learning about how to how to cultivate an intelligence that wasn't just from the neck up, that was emotional and physical and spiritual and more complex. That was one. The other thing that springs to mind is in 2004 to five, I did something called the Life Talent Program, which was about finding your life calling and then bringing it into the world. And that was really pivotal for me. I found that it gave me a way of pulling together all of the things, including the wound of my mother's death and figuring out how to weave them into a fabric that felt authentic and unique and personal and strong. And that gave me a way to tell my story and to share my gifts. And that, the story has changed, the packaging around the gifts has changed, but that was pivotal. That was like me bringing together, it wasn't just operating on a Pollyanna-ish, la la la, everything's fine. It was like bringing my guts and my wounds and my pain into the gift, along with giving me a platform to try it out and holding through a pretty grueling nine month process of facing all the blocks and falling off track several times and then coming out the other side going, okay, I'm ready to pilot this. And that was huge. Wow. And now, even if you work with and cooperate through many other people as well, do you sometimes feel lonely? Yeah, I do. And Absolutely. does it disturb you? Sometimes. I mean, often I choose an unusual path. I'd rather choose freedom than security. I'd rather choose to be self-employed than have a job. I'd rather choose to live in my beautiful boat than to be in a different kind of setting. But you know, like I have chosen these things. However, yes, especially when things are challenging, which of course they can be. And uh, when everything's cruising along, I love it. When I hit a bump, when I need help, I miss, you know, humans. <laughs> I miss the idea of having a team and a structure and a regular paycheck and I'm single as well so I don't have a partner so I don't have the kind of 
I don't have a family. All of those things that most of us um, lean on when we need to, mm -hmm. I don't have. So most of the time I don't miss it. When things are wobbly, I really miss it. And I just would love to have a job and a husband and a, <laughs> a paycheck and somebody else to tell me what to do rather than it have to be me generating from scratch all the time. So yes. Mm. I mean, everybody of course has some kind of basic needs that need to be met, but I keep thinking that maybe because you're living that kind of life so far, it's also why you keep continuing to ask questions and develop in a certain way because there's nothing less creative than being in some kind of comfort zone. Yeah. Right? And you almost never there, right? <laughs> so you so you, you I take a lot of naps. Let's yeah. just be clear. Like I I really do nap like a professional. Anyway, just want to like I find miniature comfort zones within the day. I have rituals in the morning that give me structure and the evening. I have rituals for myself, for my health, for my connecting with the world, for the people in my life. So I, I make micro structures all the time, but the bigger structure is not there and therefore, yeah, I don't have but I would probably kick against a comfort zone if I was in it for too long. I mean I, I haven't had a job since yeah 1999 because I found it very annoying <laughs> to be within somebody else's structure even though I'm sure there would be a lovely level of comfort within it mm. it just didn't suit me I like collaborating though that I do enjoy and need yeah and these are the type of um, jobs projects companies that are flourishing right now that are based more on collaboration and sharing stuff than uh, classic kind of employment. But on the other hand, I mean, for example, now you happen to mention the McKinsey CEO mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. I mean, when you hear people in a structure like that, mm -hmm. saying something like that, I love it because then you say, okay, they have really the power to change things if they have following, uh, following of course. Yes. And that's really interesting as such to collaborate with people like that to make big waves, right? That's right. I feel like what I'm hoping where this is going is that I prefer to jive with the people at that level of the food chain. So, so if you've got somebody who, like my quantum physicist guy, he can make a decision that may literally affect the entire future of the human race. And I love hanging out with him. Like we have magical conversations mm. and he is open to radical adventures and leaps. When I connect with the people who have those kinds of visions, I find that they're a really wonderful place to play for me. I also feel like some people have the capacity to inspire right the way through an organization, but ideally you're empowering not just from the top down, but you're spacious enough and imaginative enough and perceptive enough to see the sparks all over the company, all over the culture, mm. and nurture people everywhere. Not just, because the problem with the top-down inspiration is it, it obeys the patriarchal system, right? And it doesn't actually necessarily allow for a shift to happen in a different way. So yes, I love those visionary leaders, but I'm kind of fascinated by the visionary cleaning lady, you know, or the guy who kind of has yeah. just noticed that there's something could be done differently and giving those people voice, that's interesting also. Mm. Yeah, when you see all that synchronicity. Exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful. 
what would you say is the long-term formula for businesses? One thing that springs to mind is to crack open the rigidity with which they view people and profit and expand the method of measuring value and success to include other kinds of variables and metrics that include planet and include something more human, something more to do with connection and balance and heart and inspiration as well. That that would be, I, I don't quite know, there isn't a single metric, but the, I guess the single change would be to shift out of the profit and loss model and the linear way of seeing growth go from 2d to 3d if you like or to 4d like why not jump properly you know go to something that expands into a different kind of way of seeing but sometimes when i try to you know simplify the thinking of different companies is that i'm thinking okay are they humanity plus companies mm. are they at least leaving the place in a neutral place or are they truly damaging it in one way or the other yeah. you know which are the three so to say categories are they in? but do you feel that there are more and more companies that are at least are striving to become this humanity plus engine absolutely and i feel like that's in response to various different things market forces requiring it of them consumer expectations judging companies that don't at least seem to demonstrate some kind of concern for plastic or the planet or mm. palm oil or whatever. It's also millennials have much higher ethical expectations of their employers and they won't work for companies that don't have some sort of ingrained environmental policy. But also, and transparency, that's the other thing. But the other piece, there's a really interesting collaboration I'm about to embark on with, with an organization called Neighborly. Neighborly Their founder is a guy called Nick Davies, who you should speak to, actually. He used to work in corporate advertising, and he could see this need to change the world and make the world a better place. And he wanted to help those Humanity Plus companies to make an impact, but they often don't know how. Mm. So the ways in which they do that, they have all the best intentions, but often the only way that they see how to do that is to collaborate with big charities. Mm -hmm. And his argument is actually what you do is you connect with your immediate geographical neighborhood. So mm -hmm. you figure out what voluntary organizations are right next to you and then you get stuck in with them. Mm -hmm. So you give them manpower or you give them resources or maybe mm -hmm. you fund a project or maybe you go and like physically turn up and help them dig a garden or something. Mm -hmm. And to create an ongoing relationship between a corporate or an office of a corporate mm -hmm. with the people who live in the three square miles around that office, mm -hmm. that changes things. Mm -hmm. And to make that go wide is a really powerful vision, mm -hmm. which they're doing a really good job of making happen. So the infrastructure is appearing, that's one example of it, to enable meaningful action as opposed to just greenwashing or paying lip service to these things. Because the other thing is, I think, there's an increasing expectation that efforts are made, but there's also an increasingly intolerant judgment if it isn't consistent or if the company fails. And bad PR is terrifying, especially in this age of, you know, the troll and the Twitter commenting you need to be really careful that what you're promising you can actually deliver on so they under promise and therefore changes aren't swift enough so these mechanisms are being created these systems 
of cross-fertilization are beginning to be created, but it's early days. So if you would assume that you had all kinds of doors open and you have all resources available to you, is there anything in particular that you would like immediately to innovate or change, you know, be it in, in your world, so to say, or outside what you do? It's to do with this idea of reconnecting to that which is universal. So specifically how you might do that is to make every single person who's in a position of power go and hang out in a forest for half a day. Ideally having a conversation that was not related to work and make people connect to what it was like to be seven, to a moment of death, to a moment of birth, to a moment of joy, to a moment of tragedy, to a moment of triumph, and to have powerful, magical conversations where people connect to what it is to be really human, and then to go back into their work and try to bring that into it, rather than that to be a holiday or an escape, to share powerfully in a way that connects us to each other and to ourselves. I think that would change behavior and choices and potentially have a ripple effect. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of old school, but I think it can be powerful. I definitely think so. And why are we so afraid of, you know, sharing? It's like, it's my life, you know, why would I share it with colleagues? And, you know, why are people so fearful, do you think, of doing such an experience? For various different reasons. One, because we put a boundary between our professional and our personal lives, which is understandable. We don't necessarily want to bring all of ourselves to work. However, I think that given that we spend probably more time with those people than we do with our loved ones, and that the impact of our actions and our choices and our endeavors impact mm. the world. If you do it without your compassion, your humanity, your curiosity, your humility, you're liable to make bad decisions, to be too mm. stressed, to divorce. That compartmentalization mm. leads to stress and ill health and fronting and mm. faking. And actually what we need is a completely different kind of level of authenticity and openness, I would argue. I know that that isn't the case for everybody. There are definitely people who would proudly protect the professional boundary from the personal boundary. And I can see why. I think in the world that we're moving into, I think we need to question those boundaries and start mm. to become holistic in the way in which we live and work. Mm. 75, 80% of people are not happy or don't feel it's meaningful exactly. at work and this is one of the reasons I think because they people don't know really who they are and what they're driven by and right. what they want and what they want to contribute and so on and then they feel stuck yeah. and they feel like they're having to shelve a large portion of who they are in order to deliver so there's a ritual which I teach and which I always engage in myself which is before you do any piece of work in any kind of collaborative situation right. you have a check-in and the check-in is timed so between one to five to ten minutes depends on on the nature of the work and how many where you just are allowed to share uninterrupted whatever it is that is present for you that might distract you from the work so it could be I have a sick child at home I'm going through a breakup I slept terribly last night I've just fallen in love and I can't stop thinking about this but like any number of things and you bring that and everybody in the room does with equal weight you don't get feedback or interruption or chat about it. Everyone just gets to share their thing. And then you turn your attention to the work which you're about to engage in. And it creates a commonality of connection. And it also means that there's nothing, if there's something that could take them away from the work, like a sick child, 
you can now plan for that. You can kind of take that into account. You know, mm-hmm. if they are exhausted because they didn't sleep well, they can go and sleep somewhere. You know, like you can bring all these things into alignment. There's an extraordinary episode of a podcast called Invisibilia about working on an oil rig and how all these guys had so much machismo Mm. that they would never admit to there being technical errors, which led to fatalities. So the risk factors working on an oil rig are so high that if they're not humble enough to say, I don't know how this works, I don't know how to do this, the end result was actual death, you know? Sometimes death, not always, but very high danger. And this program is about how this woman came in and asked them to share their vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. and taught these oil rig workers how to expand their way of expressing. And safety records went up by 70-80% because they felt able to share their vulnerabilities as well as their strengths. And the whole thing changed. The whole culture was transformed. Mm. We are human. We may pretend not to be half the time because we're protecting something, (laughs) but we just are. And if everybody lets their belly out and goes, oh, you too, then (laughs) you've got a different starting point. There's a different possibility. (laughs) But if you were to give advice to yourself 10, 15 years ago, what would it be? It would be, we're embarking on this strange (laughs) adventure in order for you to be able to teach that which you are here to share you need to be a living example of it so you have to be playful Mm -hmm. you have to have naps you have to be curious you have to connect from the heart you have to honor and explore collaborating with people professionally and bringing all of yourself and be aware where those boundaries need to be explored because sometimes there are contracts that need to be honored or whatever like it isn't all just fluffiness Mm. so in order to you know they say you teach best what you most need to learn so my advice to myself would be treat yourself as a living experiment in how to connect heart with the work Mm. and how to explore being human whilst being effective in the world of work yeah and that requires a willingness to create an unusual life is there one uh, single piece of advice that you would like uh, leaders, however you define them, to share with them? Expand the parameters of their creative imagination so that they are ready to come up with previously unimaginable ideas in response to the previously unimaginable issues which we're going to be encountering and to meet the challenges with ease and grace and curiosity as opposed to fear and contracting and limitation. Yeah, expanding the creative imagination, like exercising a muscle so that that muscle is limber and strong and ready to be stretched when unexpected things come because they will. Very good advice, which is also linked to your well, I message about ima- imagination, yeah. right? Mm. How, um, because if we can imagine more, there are, as you say, there might be solutions and opportunities that we don't see because we, we just didn't have those pair of glasses. Exactly. I mean, there already are. That is simply in everything that is surrounding us started as somebody's imaginative idea. Sure. The transport that got you here, the buildings that surround us, the name of the city, everything, the recording equipment you're using, the clothes we're wearing, this conversation having taken place via email, all of those things started somewhere as a thought. Mm. And there's nothing around us that didn't apart from nature. 
and then you might have a religious belief that would assume that that did start as somebody's thought if you believe in god that's another conversation but mm. so given that that's the case and it isn't going to stay like this this isn't static the reality that we're experiencing right now is not going to remain the same and therefore there are almost infinite ideas that could come into place which we can only experience and act upon if our imagination is open to receive them hmm. is there one single factor or one one most important thing for companies to focus on right now the most valuable things that companies can do is to try to connect with the things that are outside of the profit making because that's already had so much energy and time and thinking and attention that the other areas are where there needs to be more love and attention and creativity and care and by other things i mean environmental impact human connection creative curiosity and openness to reconfiguring the dna of whatever the organization is in order to meet a future reality so taking your eye off the horizon of profit making and turning it into people and planet and purpose and beauty and pronoia <laughs> <laughs> and to finish off on, on a really big note uh, what do you think the world needs most at this time curiosity over fear I feel like the more that we become entrenched in our opinions, our silos, our echo chambers of political ideas and structured beliefs, the more that we are in danger of separating ourselves and painting ourselves into a corner where we we have to be right and where our ideas have no flexibility anymore and that only breaks when there's a crisis when there's an environmental crisis suddenly you don't care what your neighbor voted you don't care what their skin color is you just want to carry them from the flood right so mm. the idea would be to get there without the flood so break open the boundaries that we put in place to make other that which is unfamiliar and Brené Brown wrote a really good book on this called Braving the Wilderness which is essentially about going out beyond the boundary of our familiar world and being curious about finding out that humanity is out there too it's not just within our world so yeah curiosity over fear would be the one thing that human beings need because fear is just going to make us um fight and fly and freeze and curiosity can make us connect and create and perhaps counter the issues that are currently so overwhelming thank you to you thanks for sharing everything it's really uh, you're a wonderful uh, person oh, thank you it's wonderful to to share with you for people who want to find out more should they head to your website or where? sure my website is tudahan.com which is t for tango i u d for delta e h a a n for november.com and there you can find lots of different things including a ted talk including an online course uh, which is all about creating rituals for various different aspects of your life including work and creativity and lots of other things are all there so yeah my website is a good way to find me and i'm on instagram as tudahan1 as well 
Great. And you will also find links and show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast and uh, share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Share it with people you know would benefit from hearing this. So thanks for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Bye.